Welcome to our fifth study on the book of Revelation. For those of you who have been a part of the study, you will know that we've been going through the book uh, bit by bit. And of course, in this study, we will continue to do that. For those of you who are hearing this for the first time, you can catch up by going to my website, malcolmheading.com, and there you will find part one, part two, three, and four. But this study will deal with what I call some thoughts about the Great Tribulation. In Revelation chapter 7, we find that John gazes upon this great heavenly multitude, the saints of all history. The Bible says, in fact, a multitude that no man can count. That is amazing. And then... The Bible says in that passage in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, that one of the heavenly elders came to him and said to him, Who are these arrayed in white robes and where do they come from? And this is the reply. And I said to him, Sir, you know. And the answer is, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is a, a comment of esteem. It's not a comment of looking down upon them. It's a comment of esteem. It's important to know that. Because these saints who emerge out of the great tribulation are not in any way pictured as those who didn't make the cut at a secret rapture a few years before because they were lukewarm or backslidden. No, no, these are not the people of God who somehow didn't make that cut. The Bible places them in this position of honor. They have come out of the great tribulation and these have triumphed gloriously in Christ. The Bible even says, that they enjoy a special place in heaven near to God. In chapter 7 and verse 15, reading on in the context, it says this, Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So they have this special place in the presence of God. These are devoted dedicated followers of Jesus who came out of the great tribulation. As far as scripture is concerned, believers in Jesus have always been in tribulation. It is just part of our walk in Christ because, in fact, our values are in conflict with the world and even with the devil and actually even with ourselves. Jesus warned that we would be hated by all men because we have attached our lives to his. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 16 and verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John also saw himself ensnared in tribulation, and he even said so. And he does this in the opening verses of his book, 
the revelation. This is what he says. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And of course, then we have the Apostle Paul, who also warned the church, in fact, the churches that he had oversight of, that it was through many tribulations that we would enter into the kingdom of God. And you can read that in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Through the centuries and at all times, Christians have been subjected to tribulation and great suffering. We need to know that. Through the centuries, and in fact at all times, Christians have been subjected to tribulation and great suffering. Just two decades ago, two million South Sudanese Christians were brutally murdered by the Muslims of North Sudan. Many of these Christians were subjected to terrifying horrors in that their limbs were cut, were cut off and then their bodies were impaled on trees. Can you think of such a thing? Their limbs were cut off and dismembered in this horrific way. They were then nailed to trees and left to die. Two million South Sudanese Christians. And then there are the Christians of Iraq and Syria who in just the last few years were savagely murdered by ISIS. There cannot be any greater tribulation than this. And that's true. There cannot be any greater tribulation than this. But they all stood firm and they all gave up their lives for Christ. We've seen the most remarkable pictures of Christians kneeling down, praying, and then being beheaded. Terrible, awful pictures. But they gave their lives, believing that Jesus is their Saviour. They have come out of the Great Tribulation, my friends. And one day soon, by virtue of Christ's second coming, they will stand in victory at the very throne of God. And here they are pictured in Revelation chapter 7. So now, <clears throat> the great tribulation referenced in Scripture means in the first place, the great pressing down. That's the meaning of the original Greek language. It's the great pressing down. And secondly, is thus the climax of the tribulation that Christians have been subjected to throughout history. So we need to know that. It's not something unique or something special. The great tribulation or the great pressing down is simply the climax of a road of tribulation that Christians have walked down through the ages, beginning with John. I, John, your fellow brother in the tribulation and the patience that is in Jesus. So the great tribulation is this end game, if you will, of this 
tribulation through which the church has been walking for 2,000 years. And this is precisely why the picture of the church painted for us in the book of Revelation and chapter 7 is in fact a picture of the triumphant church through the ages right up until the very end of the age. That's the picture we have here. That is why in Revelation 7, the pages of Scripture declare that here is a multitude that no man can count. So it's a picture of the historical church up to the very end in its pilgrimage. It is an all-inclusive picture of the body of Christ. Just like the one that Paul painted in Ephesians 5, where he writes that when Jesus comes again, he will present to himself the church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is not the church exclusively restricted to a period of time. No, this is not that type of church, like an end time church, as many would have us believe. No, my friends, but this is the church of all of history now graduated. This includes John Wesley and the great preachers, preachers of time. This includes Spurgeon. This includes Jonathan Edwards. This includes George Whitfield. All these great preachers. This includes our dear beloved David Pawson, who has just gone to be with the Lord. This is a picture of the church of all time standing before her Saviour without spot and without wrinkle. No, this is not the church exclusively restricted to a period of time, but the church of all history. She will stand all glorious before him in absolute righteousness. Hallelujah. So it must be said again that the great tribulation is just the climax of a reality that has been part of the church's experience for centuries. It is not the day of God's wrath. For this is the great day of the Lord that befalls the world after the luminaries change. And we've seen that in our last study in Revelation 16 verses 13 to 17. Before the luminaries change, is the great tribulation. Then they change and that ushers in the great day of the Lord or the day of God's wrath. It is on this great day of the Lord that the church is snatched away to meet Jesus as he comes in great glory to judge the world. And this is exactly what Paul writes to the believers in Thessaloniki, in the second chapter of his second epistle, known as Second Thessalonians, and verses 1 to 8, they were being destabilized by some who were asserting that the second coming of Christ had already transpired. So they were being unsettled in the community because some were saying that uh, they've missed out, that the coming of Christ had come and had already transpired. He assures them 
that this is not true. And he says so on this grounds, that two things must happen before the day of the Lord, that is Jesus' second coming, arrives. And these are the two things. A great falling away, one, and two, the arrival of the Antichrist or son of perdition, who will again commit the abomination of desolation by standing in the temple and declaring himself to be God. Now we should read the beginning of that chapter and you will see that what I've said is exactly true. Now listen to this. Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. In other words, I'm now speaking to you about the day when Jesus comes and we are gathered to meet him. We ask you not to be shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. In other words, he says, do not be troubled or unsettled by those who tell you this day has come. Then he says this, let no one deceive you by any means for that day. That is the day when we are gathered to be with Christ will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Very interesting. Now, we have to say a few things about that. He understands and he tells them that Jesus will not come in no way until these two things take place. One, a great falling away. And two, the reign of Antichrist is in the world visible, real, and actually desecrating the temple, displaying himself as God. Then he says the only thing that is preventing the appearance of these things is a restraining entity that God will take away thus allowing the Antichrist to come forward onto the stage of history. This restraining influence can definitely, in context, not be the church, because Paul has already stated that the church will be on the earth when the Antichrist rises and reigns. So how can the church be on the earth when the Antichrist reigns and displays himself as God if the church is removed before he comes. Contextually, it is absurd. The truth is, the only restraining influence in the Bible is an angelic one. Angels are restraining the arrival of Antichrist. 
that final great Antichrist of history. The spirit of Antichrist, of course, is raging in the world. And at any moment, no doubt the devil would like to put his Antichrist on the throne of world dominion. But he cannot, because angels are restraining and keeping that from happening. In the book of Revelation, chapter 9, we are told that angels are restraining great armies that will come from the east and down into the Middle East. And at some point, they are removed and these armies can arrive and enter the stage of history. Listen to this. Revelation 9, 13, following. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four corners of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And then he says, he sees this vast army. Verse 16, the very next verse. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard them. These are what the Bible calls the armies of the kings of the east. But they cannot move. They cannot enter the stage upon which they are predestined to move until these angels who are restraining them are taken out of the world. Now, my friends, the only restraining influence in the Bible is an angelic one. The spirit of Antichrist, as we've noted, is definitely in the world and growing. But the actual rise of the beast, the son of perdition, and all that is evil is presently being restrained. This, however, will shortly change. And the signs all around us warn us of it. We need to know that. This will change. And the signs that are warning us that a beast, a son of perdition, an antichrist, is about to step onto the stage of history and wreak destruction all over the earth, much like Hitler. The Church of the Living God is about to be thrown into great tribulation. That's what Paul said. Now concerning the coming of the Lord and our gathering to him, don't be deceived in any way, by letter or by word, as if from us, that that day has already come. No, it will not come, he says, unless there be a falling away and the arrival of an Antichrist. And Paul says, you know what? Why do I have to go over this again? Because when I was with you, I told you all of this. And you can say it again today, my friends. Why do we have to go over this all over again? Because Paul told us. And he says exactly the same words to each and every one of us. Antichrist will arise. And with his reign of terror and evil, he will have dominion for a short time. 
He will be inspired by Satan. Paul says that in 2 Thessalonians, performing great signs to deceive. But the day of the Lord will break in upon the earth, snatching the church away and bringing destruction upon the Antichrist world. And that is the teaching of Scripture. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians and chapter 2 and verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And in the context, it's the same coming for the church. Two things happen on the great day of the Lord, after the luminaries change. The church is snatched away to meet Jesus as he comes. And he pours out his wrath on the Antichrist kingdom and on the ungodly. And this all harmonizes with Jesus' Olivet Discourse, because he told the church that when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, they must recognize that his coming is upon them. In Matthew 24, verses 24 to 27, this is what he writes, similar to Paul, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Don't be deceived. Or look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. His coming for his church, my friends, will be all glorious with flashing light and power attended by the angels of God in their thousands like vast clouds. And then it says he will gather his church from the four corners of the world. Amen and amen. This is Malcolm Hedy.